Good morning. You guys can uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21 if you have your Bibles. If you don't have your Bibles, just slip your hands up. The ushers will grab one for you. Uh, I just want to make sure you guys know that the irony doesn't escape me on a day that we're teaching about Jesus cleansing the temple and you get to walk into a bunch of Day of the Dead altars all over the school. I think that's kind of interesting. Um, a shared space, we get to deal with this once a year, so the school has it set up. They do some production for it with the school-wide thing tomorrow. Should be back to a little bit of a chaotic mess tomorrow for us, or next week for us. Um, let me pray again, and, and then we're going to dive in. Uh, yeah, God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Um, thank you for um, just being able to to worship you openly, God, to think about um, how you have created your bride in the individuals of each one of us, um, making up a, a church so that we can be uh, your light and your, your, your salt in this world. God, I pray that you would strengthen us today. I pray that your authority and your authority alone would be all that speaks today, God. And I pray that you would allow each one of us to leave here um, knowing what it is you are calling us to either give up, calling us to uh, move forward into, calling us to trust in, God, whatever it may be, calling us maybe even to surrender to, God. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, kind of the order of events where we are in this is we're in Matthew 21, 12 through 17, and then 22 through 32, um, or 23 through 32. Uh, this, this is kind of a, Matthew doesn't really worry about the, the chronological order of things. He just kind of does it with what he believes is the most information that needs to happen. And so kind of the, the timeline works as this. G Jesus kind of comes into Jerusalem on Sunday and does the triumphal entry. And we all saw that. And that was awesome. Then he leaves Jerusalem and heads back to Bethany. And then he um, works his way um, Monday kind of going to the temple again. And that's where he curses the fig tree. Okay, and he does that whole cursing of the fig tree, and then he goes into the temple, and that's where he does this, this cleansing that we're going to talk about. Then he leaves the temple again, heads back to Bethany, and then comes back again to the temple, and then we see the fig tree withered, and then we see um, the questioning that comes at Jesus from some of the religious leaders and, and what's going on. So that's kind of the, the timeline of what's happening. Again, this is the last week of Jesus' life on earth um, before he is crucified. And so we're going we're gonna to dig in. This is a, a section that... I had predominantly always listened and read and studied and, and heard, taught about uh, Jesus, you know, look at him showing righteous anger, right? And so we get kind of excited about, all right, Jesus can show us what to be angry and how to do it. And this is awesome. And we're going to turn some tables over. It'd be real fun. Um, but I actually, as I, I studied a little bit more, I realized I think there's, there's a lot more going on in this text than just Jesus being angry. And in fact, we have to kind of ask, why is that emotion coming out of him? Why is um, he overturning tables and then having this conversation with these religious leaders, especially since, again, in the setting of this time, you got to remember every single person knew and, and expected and desired the Messiah, the son of David to come and to, 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 to free them from all kind of imprisonment, all kind of rulership over them so that they could have a king of their own, a, a king that was of the line of David that would be in the rightful spot and they could rule themselves. And so when, when most any Jewish person this day heard the, the term Messiah or son of David or any of those terms, they, they expected him to come in with a sword and just, just thresh across, I mean, destroy Rome, crush everything, and, and win with an iron fist. And we saw in the triumphal entry, Jesus didn't do that. In fact, he didn't come in on a big white horse with a big crate. He came on a donkey, and he came in very humbly and very opposite of what everyone expected. Yet they were still crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Save us, son of David. Save us to this king. And so there's this, there's this kind of whirlwind happening where Jesus is, is displaying himself as the Messiah, but he's displaying himself as the Messiah that doesn't make much sense to most of the Jewish people to this day. 
And so here Jesus now is coming back into Jerusalem. And I, I want to talk about this too, because this is interesting. I, Jesus, it looks like from what we can understand, Jesus actually did the whole cleansing of the temple twice. He did it early on in his ministry. We see this in John chapter 2, where he comes in. We got a whip, and we got oxes, and there's a number of different accounts where he comes in and, and turns us over. Now, the synoptic gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, don't actually spend much time talking about the front end of Jesus' ministry. So John, on the very, very front end, talks about Jesus coming while in Jerusalem, coming in and overturning tables and pouring money out and doing that. It's, it's safe to say that that account and the accounts that we have in Mark, Matthew, Luke are different. One's at the beginning of his ministry and one's at the end. And so that was something that was new to me because I had always just assumed they were all the same. But there's too much verbiage that's drastically different in the way John talks about it compared to the Gospels. And the theory, there's one, one theory that says, that, oh, well, one of them's wrong. But that doesn't, that doesn't make sense because you can see both of them fitting into the timeline with Jesus' ministry. Um, the Gospel of John talks about this, this cleansing temple around a number of other things that aren't actually covered in the Synoptic Gospels. So we, we, we can see this timeline sets and makes sense here, but here's Jesus again on the end of his ministry. And it would be safe to say that, that this practice of what he's doing in this temple, what they're doing, was, was approved by all the religious leaders. So it's not that they felt like really that they were doing wrong, although I think we'll believe kind of from the response that they do question whether or not their motives and what they're doing is right. But we know that this is kind of this, this setting where Jesus comes in and he, I mean, he curses a fig tree because he was hungry and he didn't get it, which we knew, uh, like Danny talked about last week, it's, it's God doing a lot more probably for the disciples' sake. And then he walks in to the temple. Now, I've, I've been to the Temple Mount um, modern day, and I wanted to talk to you guys about it a little bit because if you don't get an idea of the picture of what, what is happening here, I feel like this, this, like most of you think of Jesus walking into a room this size, at least I used to, and kind of overturning some tables and, whoa, chaos, crazy. I, I want to kind of broaden your view a little bit to help you understand more historically what was happening. So I asked uh, Karen to pull up a picture, so we're going to pull up a drawing of, of the Temple Mount. And so this is the Temple Mount, kind of a drawing of what it would look like. And this outer section right here was, was way bigger. I want you guys to think about it. This is just the, the entry area, the Temple of Women, Temple of Men, Temple of Priests, and the Most Holy of Holies. So the Temple of Women could only go to that inner one, and then the Temple of Men could go to the next one, Temple of Priests next, and then the Most Holy, only the Holiest of Holies Priests could go into that spot. This outer section outside of this here is the Temple of Gentiles. The temple, this is where anyone else could come to worship God, if the, but if they weren't of Jewish descent, they weren't welcome in there. And this outer section is massive. I want you guys to like think about this, like huge. They've done research on crowd size and whatnot and how to make it look. And there's probably at this time in Jesus' day around 80,000 people that kind of are always in and out of Jerusalem. And it, in, except for this time being Passover, everyone's traveling to this area. So it's a huge, huge area. Here's a, here's a modern day picture of the Temple Mount. A mosque sits on the middle of it now. Um, actually, no Jewish person will go up on the Temple Mount out of fear of being accidentally walking on the most holy of holies wherever it was when it got leveled. But they talk about some of these stones for these walls being 200 tons, one stone for a wall. Okay, so it's a huge, huge, huge area. This outer area, now the outer area, the outer temple there was a, was, would come in, people would come in from the Eastern gate, which we saw Jesus was doing as he was coming from Bethany. A Mount of Olives kind of looks at the Eastern gate of, of, of the temple mount. And people would cut the Temple Mount to get to the southwest section of, of Jerusalem. So 
so what ended up happening is on this temple mount out here where the Gentiles are supposed to be worshiping God, this is a thoroughfare where everyone's coming from the east end to make their way to the city to get some, some other stuff. And then what we find is a number of money changers and animals are being sold on this outer temple area. And so, so just to give you an idea, the estimation in, in Jesus' day is that about 150 to 200,000 people could fit on the temple mount at one time. That's, I mean, that, that changes it drastically. I mean, for me, especially when you think about what Jesus is about to do, 150 to 200,000, and most of them would have been people coming to worship, but then Rome, even during Passover, would be sending guards in to kind of do crowd control for this massive uprising of people to kind of keep things in check. So you're talking just thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are in, in place here. Okay, and so Jesus is walking in, and it's a noisy, noisy area. Annas was the high priest at this point, and he, they kind of called it Annas', Annas Bazaar because out there there was so much chaos. Stuff was being sold, and, and I want to say this real quickly too. Money changers were necessary, and so was the idea of selling animals to be sacrificed. Because people that were traveling from a long ways, it didn't make sense to try and bring a dove with them. So they would just purchase a dove here so that they could be sacrificed, so they could do their atonement and do the whole Passover thing and, and, and do the sacrificing there. So they were, it was a necessary service. It was a necessary service. And money changers, there was, there was theory that there's only certain coinage that was allowed to be used to pay the temple. And so there was, had to have been someone there to exchange all the other region's money to go to this one version of money so that they could buy things. So the theory that, the, that this is just a place where they're making a profit and doing all that isn't, it's true, but that's like, this is a necessary service. It just got moved into the Temple Mount. Okay, so it's, it's in this area where the temples, where the Gentiles are allowed to come and worship God. And so there's all this stuff going. It's chaos. If you've watched some old movie where it's like you see people going and people yelling, that's kind of what's happening right here. We also know that, that, that the high priest was charging a exceptional amount of money for these animals. And a lot of times there's, there's some of the old um, writings. Josephus even tells us about how um, animals weren't accepted if they were brought. This one isn't clean enough or this one isn't spotless enough. And so they wouldn't accept it as an offering. So it was kind of this, it was in a way a money-making scheme. So Jesus is probably definitely upset about the fact that they're taking advantage of people. But, but I don't think that's the main thing that's happening here. Okay, so that's kind of the setting. Picture hundreds of thousands of people in this place. Maybe not that much at this point, but they're making their way to Jerusalem. Okay, so they're all preparing for this. Lots and lots of people. And here comes Jesus. He just cursed the fig tree. Okay, and he walks in with his disciples. And I love how Matthew just picks it up for us. Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Okay, so I want to set the scene. First off, we don't know what the disciples are doing, but if I'm one of the disciples, I kind of feel like they may be like wet their pants, okay? Like they're sitting over here going, whoa, Jesus, what are you doing here? Like, this is crazy, right? Jesus walks into this place and starts overturning tables and, and calling all these things in, in front of thousands of people. And he's, he's kicking them out. And here's what's interesting, and this is what's so unique. No one stops him, right? No one, I mean, it's one thing if there's like 50 people and people are confused, but there's thousands of people and no one stops Jesus as he's overturning tables. I kind of feel like the disciples are going, oh man, we're in trouble now. Like this isn't good. Jesus has gotten, like he's going crazy. Because again, if you look at Jesus, other than we had seen this maybe back in John, he had a whip at that point. So who knows what was going on there, right? But, but in, in essence, they're looking at every interaction they've seen to him to this day before has been 
very polite, very, very gentle, very, um, I mean, he's definitely confronted the religious leaders in their theology and their understanding. He's, he's made them feel a little bit inadequate in their thinking to help them understand what true, true following Jesus meant or following God understood or, the, or understanding the scriptures. But in this setting, I, I can't picture any setting in which I'd feel comfortable walking into a room and start overturning tables and not feel bad. Right? Like, I mean, like, you're in sin. Blah, like, doing that. Like, oh, sorry, man. Like, let me help you out. You know, figure this out. But, right? Jesus, Jesus just goes in and he just, he just ransacks this place. And, and, and probably because of the size of the crowd, that helps a little bit because we are like, what's going on? And, and people are on one end of the temple to the other. And they're not going to hear or know what's going on. But, but people are getting driven out of the temple mount. And he quote, and, he, and they're getting, I mean, they're getting driven out. And he quotes Jeremiah 7, 11 saying this, you know, robbers of den, like you guys have changed the purpose of what the temple is. Now, this is what's intriguing to me. In just a few days, Jesus is going to do away with the temple anyways. Right? Like, this is what's really funny to me. It's like, Jesus, did you, did you have to do this? I mean, like, seems a little weird. Why, why are you doing this now when in, in just a few days the, the temple veil is going to be torn in two and, and, and we now as followers of Jesus to this day have our, our body is his temple like we are the church now. It's not a building. It's not walls. It's not like you have to go to that spot. Being at that spot is really neat and there's still a, a number of, of Jews that still spend a lot of time praying at the, at the wailing wall itself and, and, and that's great. But God, but God has done away with the building. In fact, Jesus does that in his death and resurrection. So I'm like, it kind of just feels like he's like just wanting to rock the boat. I, I don't know. Like, it just seems really weird. Like, why are you, Jesus, why are you doing this? And until you understand maybe a little bit more of some history in this, it doesn't, it didn't make sense to me. So maybe let's, let's unpack this a little bit. So back in, in way, way back when this, when this, this, this temple was built, one of the times before it'd been crushed, I mean, the place had been crushed a billion times and conquered, right? Um, there were, the Jebusites were in it. And they, they oversaw it and they were in place and they thought this place was a fortified city that no one could ever come. And King David at this point had been reigning for about seven years or so and was working his way in and he wanted this city back. And so he actually, he actually comes to that city, comes to this spot and says, okay, first person to get in there, I'll make you the general of all of my armies. Like, let's do this. And Joab figures out that Hezekiah's tunnel, a tunnel that was built for water to bring up into the city because Jerusalem, it sits up on a, on a mount here. Okay, it's up high. There's this tunnel of water. You can today, I, I walk through that tunnel. It's creepy, right? But you can walk that whole thing underground, like hundreds of feet underground. And there's this temple and he climbed his way up and brought themselves into the gate that way to, to crush the Jebusites and take over and they won. But what was interesting is the, is the Jebusites, they, would, they were mocking David and his army saying, we've sent all the guards home to relax and we have the blind and the lame guarding the gates. That's how strong and fortified this city is. And so when, when, when David takes over, because of that taunting, he says, the blind and the lame will not be welcome in this house. It will not be welcome in this house. And we have the, the pool of Bethesda on the outside where you see a bunch of um, Ill, ailments or ill people that aren't welcome in here. Now, what's unique is what happens right after Jesus cleanses. I mean, right after he cleanses the temple. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple to, and he healed them. In the temple, he healed them on spot, right there. See, Jesus was trying to take their understanding, just like I believe he's trying to take our understandings at time, and flip them upside down. And say, you're missing, you're missing what I'm doing. I don't think this has really much to do with Jesus and anger, although I believe a lot of us in here sin anger all the time. 
right? We sin in anger so much. And we try and use this as a, as a righteous anger to act like we can turn over tables. But really, we are we're just burning inside with hate and vengeance and bitterness and deceit. So anger, I believe, is, is, a, is, a, is a, a thing that, that maybe could be talked about. But I don't think that's the main point here. I think what Jesus is doing is he's establishing his authority. But he's doing it in a way that, that, that only makes sense for the true Messiah to do it. It doesn't make sense for him to come in a sword, although he could have crushed Rome and done it exactly that way. No, instead he's going to come in on a donkey in the most humble of ways possible. And then he's going to start healing those who were not welcome on the temple mount in the temple. And he's going to start doing that. And he's going to establish the fact that not only did when he came in the city, they were crying, son of David. Right? But he's going to follow David's footstep and turn even that system upside down and say, I've created a new, a new kingdom. And my kingdom is about healing. And my kingdom is about doing these things that make no sense. And I think he exercises a little bit of his authority. In fact, we know he does because the questions that we're going to come to right after this is by what authority are you doing this? Right? But he, he exercises an authority without what's unique is they expected him to come in and crush Rome. And instead, he came in without a weapon and started attacking the Jews. They expected him to come in and crush all these inhabitants that were, that were oppressing the Jewish people. And he said, no, 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 I'm here for you guys, and I need you to start thinking about this differently. And so he turns these tables over. I think the disciples, you know, like, uh, bathroom break, and they left. Like, I think they bailed on that one. And he turns these tables over, and then the blind and the lame see his strength, his confidence. See, no one stop him. No one stops him. The, the Roman guards don't come in. Nothing stops him. He just kind of creates this little turmoil right here. Again, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense, really. But no one, no one comes in and intervenes in this setting. And then he starts healing those again. In fact, this is the last healings that we get in the account of Jesus' life. And he starts healing, and he's, he's posturing, like, look, this is what I'm doing. I think he turns those tables over and sits back down, picks a stool up. He's like, all right, come on. Come on. Let's do this. And he starts healing. And then he goes on. But when the chief priests, and so there's only one chief priest necessarily, but there might have been a couple where if one had resigned, they would still be around and considered a chief priest and the scribes. So religious leaders that run this temple mount, they run kind of everything that was placed. They were the ones that gave the authority to these money changers and these animal sellers and all these other things. They were the ones that kind of had their hands in all this. And they knew that their authority came from the high priest. And so, and the high priest's authority came from God. And so there's this authority thing happening right now where the, where the chief priests and scribes come to Jesus and Matthew does this out of order, but, but as he was doing, so, so chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and they heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. So here are the children now screaming, save us, son of David. It couldn't get any more clear. This is the Messiah. We are claiming he is the Messiah. There's no, no confusion at all in that term and the way that's being said at this point. And so the chief priests and scribes come to Jesus and like, and they were indignant. They were so upset. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? What these, what they, what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of, of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now, what's unique about this is the chief priests chief priest and scribes don't come up to him and say, Whoa, 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 Jesus, what are you doing with the money changers, man? They don't even argue that. Doesn't that seem weird? Right? Like these guys are like, they're the, the authority that put this in place. They don't come to Jesus and they don't argue at all that he just kicked a bunch of their system out. 
They don't argue it one bit. In fact, the only thing they argue is that these children, these small children, are claiming that Jesus is going to save them as the Messiah. And they're like, would you hear, like, stop him. Stop them. How can you let these children say this? Remember, they didn't have a high view of children. So it's like these, these, these second-class citizens are saying something that is blasphemous. How can they say it? They don't even acknowledge the fact that Jesus just turned over the money changers. I think it's because they knew in their heart of hearts what they were doing was wrong. As is my, that's my own conjecture. I think that they knew that what that was, that that was actually, they'd exploited the system. This used to be outside of the Temple Mount. They moved it in for convenience sake and they were doing it to try and make a profit. And, and I, think, I think in that setting, they knew that that was wrong, but they couldn't handle him being called the son of David, even though just two days prior, the crowds were calling him that. From these children on the Temple Mount, in their stomping grounds, what they control Right? So you hear what they're doing? And, and Jesus quotes Psalm 8 too. He says, yeah, have you not read this? Like my praise is here. Jesus does not deny it at all. He says, yeah, they're going to praise me. He's declared and prepared praise for me before time out of the mouth of babes. And so here's a setting. So then Jesus leaves. And I, I'm assuming a, a very, if they're indignant at this point, they're really, really mad, Right? And they're super mad. And so they go and they kind of have their little powwow where they probably, again, we see this over and over again in the gospels where the Sadducees and the scribes and the, and the Pharisees, we see all these people that just do not agree on anything come together in disagreements of Jesus. And so they probably called this meeting powwow and said, we got we to shut them up. Like no one did anything. I, I think someone were like, hey, Bob, where were you on that, dude? Jesus was thrown over tables. Why didn't you step in? I bet there's this big argument like, well, I didn't do it because I thought you would. And they, you know, they kind of blame it. And Jesus leaves with his disciples, comes back, does the whole, like they're coming back the next day and they see the whole fig tree instance. Disciples marvel like, whoa, wow. Right, this experience with the disciples. I think again, a lot of what Jesus is doing in the setting is, is for the disciples' sake. He's, he's, he's upending everything that they thought. So they now have seen him come in the most humble of ways. They've seen him do another amazing miracle where he's, he's frustrated with those that claim to be his children not bearing fruit, right? He has cleansed the temple because what they've done is they've taken a spot of worship and ruined it. You know what's, what's interesting about that? And I think the reason why Jesus was most frustrated, I think there is something to be said about the church exploiting people for money. I think there is definitely something that we can say about that, but I don't even think that's the reason why. You know why I think he was so, Jesus was so angry? Is because the very people that he came to save were the ones that the Jews were not letting in. They had an outer temple for them. In fact, that outer temple was, was allowed there, but really it was a thoroughfare. People could just walk on through. It's like, it's just, it's just like we just passed through here. Could you, I mean, you imagine like you're sitting there trying to have a prayer moment, like sitting there nice and quiet and praying, and someone bumps into you and they're, you know, sorry, and their horses are walking by. It's like, oh, and it poops right next to you. I mean, like they had basically said that the Gentiles' worship didn't matter. They had said that, that, that their worship doesn't really matter. We can do all this right here because it's so much more convenient than going off the Temple Mountain down and then having to bring that stuff up. And Jesus is, is, is angry at the fact that he's saying, how dare you treat them as second-class citizens in my kingdom? How dare you? And he's, he's basically saying, look it, you know what? And, and we'll see this in just a second. You think you're first in the kingdom and actually you're last. My kingdom is for such as these. Jesus is upset because they took what was supposed to be holy, prayer, 
time to place to come to, to, be, to be close to God. And Jesus valued prayer so much. And they said, well, our prayer is more valuable. That's why we have the inner rooms to do it. But out here, we're going to have conversations and deal, sell stuff and, and barter and, and do all that kind of stuff. Jesus like, how, how dare you? How dare you create another step for them to try and be a follower of me? You keep blaming, you keep claiming this, I'm a son of God because I'm a son of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, and you're ostracizing, you're holding these people out. Like, how dare you? See, and I think that we do that. Maybe not as, as a collective building or whatever, but I think any, every one of us struggle at time to, to, to make that there has to be another step, right? You have a friend that's gone off the deep end, right? Well, you need to do these 16 steps before you can experience God's grace. Before you can actually have a space to pray to God, you need to make sure that you do this and this and this and this. And we start putting this, this intricate system, this religious system in place to make it so that people can worship God. That's the very thing that, that Jesus is throwing tables for, guys. So he's indignant. He's mad. The chief scribes are mad. Sounds like a very not hostile setting, right? So Jesus comes back in, in chapter, in verse 23. It says, and when he entered the temple, so this is after he came back, the fig tree was dead. He comes back in this the next day. He walks in and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. So Jesus was, it's interesting because he's, he's teaching again in this temple. Like anyone to teach in the temple would have had to have been given the permission and the right to do so. So he just goes in and sits down and starts teaching, right? So they come up to the question. They're like, okay, he's teaching here. By what authority are you? They, they walk up, interrupt him speaking, right? He's teaching these people and everyone's listening. You just kind of walk up in this, in this setting. Just interrupt him right now. It'd be like someone walking up and interrupting me right now, although what I'm saying probably has less value than what Jesus says, right? So be interrupting right now. And they say, and they just come up to him like, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So, so, okay, why are you doing this, Jesus? And, and who gave you permission? Who gave you right to do this? Now, this question is unique because they know that they are the authority, right? So if he says, I got the authority from the, from the high priest, they can be like, uh-uh, no, you didn't. No, you didn't, because I just talked to him today. We were, we were over lunch. We were mad about you flipping over tables, and we talked about it. No, nope, no, nope, you can't do that, right? They already had set this up, and they knew if he claimed that the authority was from God, which is the very term son of David, right? If they claimed it, then they can call him out for blasphemous, blasphemy, and then hang him on the spot right there. The Roman guards gave them permission to kill people if they went out of the temple mount in the order that they weren't supposed to. So if a Gentile came into the Jewish area, the Jews had permission to put them, up, put them to death right there. The Romans also gave them permission to kill someone for blasphemy of their God, even though the Romans didn't believe in that, didn't believe in that God and their God. So, so they had permission. So they're thinking, here's this question. We ask him this. He's going to say one or the other. And either way, he's stuck and we've silenced him. And all these people around us here are going to say, oh man, Jesus, he was wrong. He was wrong. I can't believe they let him do this turn in the table. I can't believe he did that. And so he said, by what authority? And so Jesus does what Jesus does best. All right. Jesus answered and said, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, I want you to, to know he's not being evasive here. He's not not answering their question. In fact, he has every desire to answer their question, but he needs their heart to be in the spot where they're actually going to hear it. Because he could easily say, by the authority of God. 
remember, you know, the, my baptism, God speaking from heaven. I mean, like, it was pretty legit, right? Like, I mean, come on. Like, you've seen that. All these miracles, blind people. Like, you haven't done any of that. Like, come on. I got this authority. He could have easily said that. So he, he could have said that, and he would have been right. But he doesn't. He says, no, I, I want to I challenge you on your thinking. And basically, what he's going to do is he's going to go back to John the Baptist, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he's going to say, by what authority? So he poses this question. And I, I bet if they had answered this question, Jesus would have answered him too. He wasn't trying to be evasive and not answer it. But for them to answer this question, they would have had to deal with their hearts. And they weren't ready to do that. And I think there's a lot of times that God asks you those very questions, trying to deal with your heart, and you choose not to answer because you're not comfortable or ready for him to push that deep into you. You're not, you're not comfortable with the authority that he has in your life. And so you run from it. I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. These things, by the way, cleansing the table, temple, healing the blind, healing the, 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 the lame, like this, these amazing things. Oh, and teaching in the temple. Like he's, he's doing everything that, that like the rabbi of rabbis could do, right? It's like, well, where do you get these, these things? So Jesus acknowledges these things. We don't necessarily know what, but he says, these things I do, I'll tell you. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? So John's baptism, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And so the scribes, they get together and they start thinking like, well, if we say from man, all the people here believe that John was a prophet. There was no question of that. Everyone believed that John was a prophet. Right? They believe that. But if they say from God and appease the crowd around them, then they're acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah because John was the prophet that came before him, that they all knew in the scripture over and over again, that was foretold. And so they're in this spot, like, how do we, how do we answer this? If we say this, they discuss, we haven't. He will say to us, why then did you not believe in him? Because the scribes and the religious leaders didn't believe in John the Baptist. So they can't say he's from God because we didn't believe in him. But if we say he's from man, and so they do what I think so many of us do so many times when Jesus poses us a, a, a double-edged sword question like this. They just choose to walk away and not answer. It's too hard. Oh, you're asking too much of me, Jesus, right now. I can't, I can't do that. From, from man, we were afraid of the crowd, and for they had, all had, they, had all, they had all held that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. We do not know is what they answered. This is a lie. And they said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And see, he's saying, I have all authority. And, and my, my, my thinking is that you know that. But to acknowledge that, it's going to mean that your life is going to have to be drastically transformed. That means that you're going to have to forsake all that you knew up to this point and reorient it and rethink it and go, okay, wait, how did I, how did I miss this? It's the ultimate spot of humility. Saying, I was wrong. And they know the answer, but they weren't willing to say that. Similar to you and I, at times, we know the answer, but our pride gets in the way. We want to know, Jesus, how can you have this authority in my life? I, I don't want to give you authority of my time or my finances or my friendships or my relationships or my education or my job. I don't want to give you authority of that. What makes you think you have that authority? He comes and says, well, let's just look at your life to this point. Have I forgiven you all of your sins? Have I, have, I, have I given you an avenue at which you can be made whole and pure and have joy to its fullest? Have I given you the ability to do that? 
Well, and that's the same authority that I have over your finances and your time and your relationships and everything else. And you and I, we come to that crossroad and we go, well, I don't know, Jesus, you know, maybe, maybe you have authority over this time and this relationship, but I don't know about this one or this one or this one. And we walk away saddened from Jesus. And you know what Jesus does? He pushes in. He pushes in right here. He goes right in. I think this happened right at this point. Pushes in and says, what do you think? What do you think? He goes to a parable. What do you think? Verse 28. A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered him, I will not. I will not answer. Not a good answer usually, but either way. I will not. And, and, then, and then he went. Um, but afterwards, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said to them, said the exact same. And he answered, I go, sir. I'll do this. But he did not go. Then Jesus says, which of the two did the will of his father? So the one that said, no, I'm not going to do it, and then went and did it? Or the one that said, yeah, 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 I'm in. I'm in. You got it. Let's do this. But then didn't. And they said the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, truly this is like, pay attention here. The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So he goes into the two most hated people groups by most of the Jewish religious people. Two most hated people groups. The tax collectors are, are they, they're, 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 they're traitors. They've sold themselves. They're exploiting their very own countrymen at the cost of, of riches from the Rome. And the prostitutes, they, they are the, the most immoral person that, that, that Jews held at that point. And he says, those people believed in John. And they entered the kingdom of heaven. And then I love what he says after that. And he says, and even when you saw that, even when you saw Matthew sitting right here next to me, this dude, right? Even when you see his changed life, you still won't believe. He's saying it's your entitlement, your, your, your theory of being a child of Abraham and assuming that you have first reigns to the kingdom isn't true. He says, these believe and they enter before you. Before you doesn't mean that all of those will be entered into the kingdom of God. It's not, a, it's not an elixir to unbelief. It's, it's, that, it's that they have believed and therefore they enter. So the Jews can believe too, but again, it has to deal with the core of which they're, they're, dealing, they're wrestling with. They're like, whose authority does Jesus really have? Like, who is he? So I pose the question to all of you guys today. What, what is there in your life that maybe, just maybe, Jesus would walk in and start turning over tables? I mean, you know it. Like, you can think about it right now. He's like, this does not belong here in my temple, which, by the way, as a follower of Jesus, you are his temple. No, 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 no. I am turning over tables here. I am done with that. And he's going to come in and he's going to whoosh, throw it over and say, this is it. That's it. And then he's going to do what he does best and he's going to start healing. But what is it? What are you standing there doing over and over again, knowing very well that it doesn't fit? It doesn't belong it's in the way of. Maybe some of what you are doing is in the way of others seeing God because of your actions. And Jesus is going to flip those tables over and come in and say, all right, you want it? You want it? By the way, that, that probably doesn't feel good, just so you guys know. If you're wondering like, okay, I'm going to surrender this to Jesus. It's not probably like this, oh, that was easy. I'm so glad you took that from me. 
you ever dealt with with a continuous sin of addiction, whether it's alcohol or porn or something else, you, you continue to wrestle with, with, with selfishness in your time, your finances, and you say, God, take it, take it. Rarely does it feel like he comes in and goes, okay, buddy, here you go, let's go. Like, I kind of feel like when it comes to me, he's like, all right, flips the table and says, let's do this. Let's go, I got some healing to do. He's ready. He's ready to do it. He has all authority to do so in your life. You just need to be fully surrendered to him. You can either approach him like the tax collectors who knew they had no right in the presence of God. And you can believe, or you can approach him like the chief, chief priests and scribes who felt like they had every right to be in the presence of God, but they were unwilling to submit to Jesus' authority, thereby leaving them out of the kingdom of God. What is it for you? Jesus is, is establishing in the most specific way possible just a few days before he's crucified that he has all authority given to him by God. And he's, he's established himself that way for you individually today, whether you have surrendered your life to him or not. And he says, I am all authority. Everything comes through me. There's, there's, no, there's no other way. There's no option B. There's no like you figured out the secret to get around Jesus. No, it's, it's, it's me. And you got to deal with that. And some of you, you are just, your pride is fighting that. You just keep fighting the fact that he has authority in your life. You want him to save you, but you won't let him be your Lord. You want him to bring salvation so you can have some amazing joy of heaven, but you won't give him the keys to your life today so he can use you for his glory. Jesus isn't just Savior. He's Lord and Savior. And he has all authority to do that. So some of you, my, my assumption is, is that it's time for some table throwing. And maybe you need to do it. Don't sit in your anger. Good luck figuring that one out, right? <laughs> but you need, to, you, need to, you need to have some tables turned. It's time to flip some stuff over. Maybe, maybe even there's, there's, there's things that we collectively as a church here need to have some tables turned for. But, but here's, 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 the promise, uh, here's the promise of Jesus. When he's in charge in your life, when, he, when he's in charge, then you're right where you're supposed to be. It's where you were created to be. It's what you're made for. It's, it's, it's him. And so he is, he is here. He's knocking on the door. Sometimes he's going to blast through that door and he's going to start flipping tables over. Some of you, he's asking the question right now, who, who am I to you? Who am I to you? with this relationship? Who am I to you really with your career? Who am I to you with this marriage? And he's posing that question. Say, I'm here. I'm here. And you got you to deal with that. My authority is what's getting in the way of your pride and selfishness. They don't work together. And so you're going to have to open your hands up. The band's going to come up and we're going to continue to worship. And we're going to worship I hope with a heart that understands that we're worshiping a God who has all authority in our lives. So, so my, my challenge to you is, is, is worship can be so easy to go through the motions, right? It can be so easy to be at that temple mount selling a dove for 10 times the amount it's worth thinking you're doing people a favor, thinking you're actually doing it the right way. And you're just going through the motions. And my assumption is some of you are gonna stand up and you're gonna try and sing 
and you're just singing, you're just going through the motions. You just think that by being here and standing up and doing that without a heart that's surrendered to him, it's going to mean something. You've been, you've been fooled if that's what you believe. Worship is, is, is from your heart and your heart is his and he has all authority in your life. So then if that's where it is, then I, I tell you, sing as loud as you can. Who cares how off pitch you are? But if, you, if you're wrestling with him as authority, you're like, I just don't, I don't know if he's my authority. I'm not, I'm not sure I can give this. Then, I, then I, I, I challenge you to sit and ask God to speak into that space. Maybe just be bold enough to say, God, come turn those tables over. Come, come just destroy it. I'm done holding on to this stuff. I need your authority to come in that way. Because the gentle knock isn't working. I, I'm too prideful. I'm too selfish. I just can't get out of my own way. I need you to come in and just uproot. Let's, you know, let's go back to the beginning of your ministry when you had the whip. Let's break the whip out too. I'm ready. Let's get this going. And watch God's love overwhelm your heart. And when your heart is overwhelmed by his love, you can't help but worship him in everything. Amen? God, please, please bring us to a spot of full, surrendered worship, God. God, would you be the authority of our lives? Would you be the authority that speaks to us every single day of every single decision of every single moment, God, would we rest knowing that your spirit is good and he is leading us into the way of everlasting, God. And for those of us that continually wrestle with your authority, God, I pray that you break us down of our pride. I pray that you oppose us in our proud so that you can give grace to us in our humility. Father, you are a good Good Father, you are a, a good God and you have, you have established Jesus for us to be able to be right with you. So God, I pray that we worship not out of motion, not because maybe we feel like it's okay and it's been justifiably so to stand on the Temple Mount and sell some money changing stuff. God, I pray that we would stand right here knowing that we're standing in your presence as your follower, as your surrendered surrendered follower disciple, knowing that you have all authority. God, for those that are here today that wrestle with you as authority, they don't, they don't necessarily believe that you are who you say you are. They don't, they don't even know how to compute the idea of you walking into a temple mount with thousands of people and turning over tables and, and being okay with that. God, I, I pray that you would break in like you've never broken in before. I pray that you don't wait, God. I pray that today you just overwhelm their heart with your grace and your love and you show them that it's by God's authority that you moved in Jesus Christ. It's by God's authority that Jesus Christ went to the cross. It's by God's authority that he rose from the grave. It's by God's authority that we can be surrendered to him as Lord and Savior in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.